0: In Nulm, a priest of Sigmar flung himself from the top of the temple screaming that the Dark One had returned. In Ulthuan, the lore masters of the High Elves have noticed a shift in the winds of magic. Dark energy is flowing stronger than it has done for centuries. A questing knight in Bretonia proclaimed that he met a grotesque stranger, who claimed to be an emissary of a growing power. Deep beneath the world's edge mountains, The dwarfs are reading their oldest records, scouring them for clues as to why their runes of warding and protection are beginning to fail. In their tunnels, the Skaven are more frantic than ever, burrowing with insane ferocity, driven by the approach of Chaos. And out in the Sea of Chaos, sailors report that the fogs and mists that shroud the mysterious isle of Albion have lifted, and imposing white cliffs can be seen Rearing from the waves, the fate of the world hangs in the balance. Seems it never rains in southern Albion. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Nathan Stone, and today we will be looking at the 2001 Dark Shadows campaign supplement for Warhammer Fantasy. This campaign added a lot of lore to the Warhammer world, and unfortunately it was somewhat pushed to the side and forgotten after the 6th Ed era. We're going to be looking at that beautiful little book and exploring its depths. But before we do that, let's share some hobby and some news. I said on the show a little while ago that I had started playing a Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 4th Edition campaign with Marcel, who is a friend and patron of the show as the Game Master, and a couple other guys, one from Canada and one from Germany. And we have now done two sessions of this game. It's been lots and lots of fun. Our first session was just getting a handle on the systems of the game, how all of the skills and combat worked. We came across each other on the road to Altdorf as we walked through the Reichwald Forest, where we were set upon by Beastmen. It's one thing to play a game like Dungeons & Dragons, where you start off and one character is the wizard and one character is the fighter or the cleric or whatever. In Warhammer Fantasy roleplay, you are never that lucky. We have... In our party, a nun of Sigmar, an entertainer, and my own character who is a farm boy turned brigand who might be the most martial of the three, which is not saying much. We struggled mightily against those beastmen. We had some terrible roles. It was lots of fun, though. And eventually we did get by them. In our second session, we had come across a fortified inn off the road. And we had an interesting run-in with the innkeeper and a alleged road warden who were occupying the inn. However, we quickly learned that something dark was going on. There was something lurking in the stables. Unfortunately, we had to stop towards the climax of the session as my power kept going out. We got a late winter storm this week and... It just so happened to fall on the Friday that we were playing, so there was a couple of times that I lost power completely, and we decided to end there and pick it up another day. I think we're about to have a showdown with the occupants of the inn and whatever horrid creature that they have in the stables. All I know about it is that it is vaguely humanoid with six legs, and that it was eating the body of someone when I saw it in the darkness. I didn't stick around in the barn to figure out what it was, but I feel like it will be coming to me pretty soon. That game is a ton of fun. If you guys haven't played the new edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, I've just had these couple of sessions, and from what I've seen, I can heartily recommend it. I am a fan of simple and intuitive systems. I don't like getting bogged down in the rules, and I would rather roleplay than roll dice, and you can do that. In this version of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, I think it's a little bit simplified, but it still keeps that unique feel of playing in a proper Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, and part of that as well is just that you are hopelessly overmatched in all situations, and you always feel like you're about to die, but it makes for great tense games. I would rather play in an underpowered game than an overpowered game any day of the week. I find that I get bored really easily if in combat situations, unless there's some real tension, and Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay works that in so well. One of the nice things about playing over the internet, which you don't really get if you're playing in person, is that you can set up and do a little bit of painting while you roleplay. And that's exactly what I did. It helped me start some more of my Gene Stealer Chaos Cult Imperial Guard. That's a mouthful. So I've begun painting four more of the 2nd Ed Cadians that are going to be my brood brothers whilst doing that, allowing me to do a little bit of hobby while I do a little bit of hobby. As far as games played, I did get one in in the last couple of weeks with Patrick. That was a game of 2nd Ed 40k, lots of fun. I continued my recent streak of just getting absolutely blown out, completely and utterly decimated. It was my Blood Angels versus his Chaos, and he made great use of his Beastmen. Beastmen great in 2nd Ed. 40k, I think I've mentioned that before, but it does bear repeating. They can cause you all sorts of problems if you don't have enough guns to get rid of them, and it can be a challenge to get enough guns on the field in 2nd Ed. 40k, especially with an elite army like Space Marines. This game was lots of fun for a few reasons. Patrick managed to get off an incredible spell with his Nurgle Sorcerer, who ended up killing four out of my five Terminators by just using a single spell and summoning a Plague Bearer in their wake. He also had a Lord on a Juggernaut that did some mischief. It ended up trampling my poor Space Marine Captain into the dirt. All in all, if anything could go wrong for me, it did go wrong for me. Which is unfortunate, but sometimes that's just how it goes, or in my case, that's just how it goes. Still a fun game played. I'm really looking forward to the day when my gene stealer cult can take the field opposite Patrick's forces. I don't know if they'll be any better than my poor, misused, and mistreated word bearers and blood angels, but they will look like ten times cooler. And really, Isn't that how you actually win at wargaming? It isn't, but I like to claim that sometimes. It makes me feel better. (laughs) On to news. I have a couple of things to share with you. The first of which is that our first live stream game is now out on the Wargames Orchard YouTube channel. That one is a classic matchup of Wood Elves versus... Vampire Counts, Heinrich Kemmler during the Winter of Woes trying to invade Athel Loren and turn it into a new realm of undeath. We have Scott and Jesse playing that game whilst I provide commentary, talk to chat, and just hang out, talk lore, talk shop, and do some Warhammer trivia. Luckily I can't spoil this game as it hasn't happened yet, I'm recording this well before the livestream actually happens. And if you're listening to this podcast, through the magic of linear time, it will have already happened, and you can hit that up on the Wargames Orchard YouTube channel. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to assume right now that it went off without a hitch. Everything was perfect and flawless, and we all had a great time, and we gained a million subscribers. So yeah, see the phenomena sweeping the nation. Next up is my obligatory Patreon plug. The WarGames Orchard Patreon is where we put all of our fun bonus content. The month of March saw two Patreon bonus episodes. The first one being on an incredible 4th Ed Citadel Journal Kislev army list. This thing is great, it's bears all the way down, fun special characters, really cool thematic units and everything that we should have got in a Kislev army book, but never actually did. The other episode is the Warhammer Hall of Shame. Myself, Scott, and GJ reunited the Warhammer Hall of Fame crew to do a bonus episode highlighting some of the worst units throughout the eras of Warhammer fantasy. That was a really fun one. I think we had more disagreements about that than we did on the Warhammer Hall of Fame by a wide margin. And you can check out both of those episodes on our Patreon, plus a bunch of other stuff. You can do this all for a dollar a month, or as many dollars as you can spare. Our Patreon is non-tiered, as we want as many people as possible to be able to access the shows on the Patreon As we move into the YouTube and video space, we will be eventually putting some videos up on the Patreon as well. It's already a good value, it's only going to be a better value moving forward. So please do check that out if you want to support the show. It helps us out so much and gives us lovely warm feelings just all over. Now, let's go back to the summer of 2000. This is a summer that I remember quite well. It was my first summer living in Nova Scotia. I was born and lived for the first 12 odd years of my life in Ontario. And if you're not familiar with Canadian geography, I won't hold that against you. Ontario is towards the center of the country, and Nova Scotia is along the Atlantic coast. Canada being far too big for the number of people who actually live here, it meant that this was a big move. We had to travel well over a thousand kilometers between our old home in Oakville, Ontario, and our new home in the Annapolis Valley region of Nova Scotia. I went from living in a pseudo-city of about 300 400000 people to living in a small town of perhaps ten to 12,000. It was a very rural place, and luckily we didn't stay there long, but I was there for the summer of 2001. I remember this because Albion released, and it was the first time I had ever seen something like this for Warhammer Fantasy. The year before had brought about the Armageddon campaign for Warhammer 40k, but for Fantasy, This was something a little bit unprecedented, and from one of the few hobby shops that existed in the neighboring town, I was able to get my hands on the Dark Shadows Albion Supplement. Like most things regarding Warhammer Fantasy, I immediately loved it, and I imagined whilst playing small skirmish games with myself because I didn't know anyone who played and I don't even know if there was anyone playing really, especially around my age of 13, that I could have played with. I remember very clearly setting up little scenarios and trying to base them on the scenarios in this book. I found this campaign to be maybe the most enthralling of all of them, even though it was perhaps a smaller scope than any of the other campaigns that we got in the era. For anyone who didn't play in, the early aughts, Games Workshop leaned into doing summer campaigns, and these summer campaigns came with supplemental books and rules, and they told a story of the battle for a part of the Warhammer world, or the fate of the Warhammer world itself, and in Forty K's case, the third war for Armageddon, and then later on, the Eye of Terror campaign, being the first time that Games Workshop visited the 13th Black Crusade of Abaddon the Despoiler, eventually Games Workshop pivoted away from the summer campaigns. But for a few years in the early aughts, we got these incredible tomes full of lore, alternate armies, new units, new models, and it made for a very special time. I don't know if Games Workshop ever really got what they wanted out of the summer campaigns, They seem to be fairly quick to retcon a lot of the things that happened in them over the years, but they still remain to a large part of the community that was there when they were going on as very special and unique moments in time in the history of Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000. Eventually, I am going to do episodes on each one of those summer campaigns, Armageddon, Eye of Terror, Storm of Chaos. But today, we're going to start things off with Albion. Albion was definitely the smallest scale of the campaigns that Games Workshop released. I think because of that, it was easier to get into and really get a sense of the lore and what was going on and the struggle on Albion. It was a new part of the Warhammer world, for all intents and purposes, that hadn't been explored to a great degree before, other than the odd thing like the Giants of Albion as a Dogs of War unit, who were in themselves rather short-lived. It's not a large book by any means, clocking in at around 27 pages, but it is jam-packed full of interesting content. Let's start off today by learning about Albion. In the words of the authors themselves, In a time long before man first discovered the secret of fire, millennia before the first elf learned the art of the bow, a race known only as the Old Ones forged the world. Legends tell how they manipulated the ebb and flow of magic to mold the land to their will, and how they sowed the seeds that would form into the vast forests that covered the world. The races of elves, dwarfs, and men were like children to them, whom they nurtured and taught, It is said that even the great dragons were mere playthings to these godlike beings. In time, the Old Ones chose the island of Albion as one of the locations to build their homes. Little is known about their settlements, for few have ever visited Albion, let alone returned from this mysterious place. They forged an island paradise where the sun shone bright and crops flourished. Gathering together the wisest and bravest individuals of each race, they taught them magic and other skills— they demonstrated the secrets of forging runes to the dwarfs, and to the elves they taught the mastery of spellcasting. The old ones believed that the race they called man was too primitive to learn. They were quickly surprised at the speed at which mankind adapted to its surroundings. They were so impressed that they chose to teach a select few of the cave-dwelling tribesmen some of their secrets. Those they taught went by the name of truth-sayers, for it was their duty to teach the other tribesmen the true path to enlightenment. They instructed their students to spread across the world and populate the continents, whilst all the time the Old Ones kept a watchful eye over their subjects. They, in turn, were worshipped as gods, and temples were erected in their honor. The race of man impressed the Old Ones the most, for he seemed to be able to adapt to any climate, and small tribes quickly flourished in every corner of the world. Carvings upon the Slan Pyramid temples found deep within the jungles of Lustria and the earliest songs of the high elf bards tell of a great disaster that befell the noble Old Ones. A magical gateway, their portal to the distant worlds, collapsed, and they were forced to flee the fledgling world that they had created, lest they become stranded. Unable to help those races they had brought about into the world, the Old Ones had little choice but to leave them to fend for themselves. Their parting gift was to create a race of giant warriors to protect the people of Albion. The collapse of the gateway tore a great hole in the fabric of the heavens, allowing for the forces of chaos to pour into the world. As the chaos mists enveloped the land, hordes of gibbering demons and all manner of foul beasts descended from the north in a bloody rampage. Many of the wise slan, The highest servants of the Old Ones were first to fall. A brave race, they tried to fight off the first wave of attackers, but were too few and too weak. They fled into hiding within the dense jungles of Lustria. Next, the Chaos Hordes turned their attention to the High Elves, but the Old Ones had taught their children well. The High Elves constructed a vortex at the center of the heart of Ulthwan to contain and drive back the Dark Mists. The mages of the Elves created this vortex by building a series of stone circles to absorb and diffuse the Chaos energy. In their arrogance, the High Elves thought that they alone were the saviors of the world, but it was not so. By concentrating their attack on Ulthwan and leaving the Isle of Albion, The Chaos Hordes made a fatal flaw in their plan of conquest. The Truthsayers, or Druids as they were called by the people of Albion, gathered together the giants and bade them to construct a series of stone circles. With such immense strength at their disposal, the Truthsayers soon had a great many of these circles whose mystical properties would allow them to channel their spells and bind the forces of Chaos to the north. In many ways, their mastery of this form of magic was better than that of the Elves. Not only were they able to contain the Chaos Mist, but they were also able to use the stones to weave their own veil of fog around their island, protecting what they called the Ogham Stones from danger. The elves would certainly have been overrun had the druids of Albion not stemmed the flow, but the mist that shrouded the isle also blocked out the sun. Something in the nature of the stone circles attracted the rain and storms. Over a short period of time, the fertile land of Albion became a boggy region where few crops grow. In absorbing much of the chaos energy, the soil of Albion itself became tainted, and once fertile fields quickly changed into quagmires where a man could sink without a trace. The thick woods and forests became wild places where hawthorn and poisonous plants choked the life from the trees. Many feared to enter these once beautiful glades, and many of those who did were never seen again. Even the creatures of Albion were not able to escape the mutating effects of chaos, and after only a short period of time, the tribesfolk told tales of terrible monsters lurking in the darkest reaches, emerging at night to prey upon the unwary. It was a price that the Truthsayers had little choice but to pay. If the dark forces of chaos were to be contained, then Albion had to remain hidden. The Truthsayers gave the task of guarding these stone circles to the giants who had constructed them, Said to have been formed from the earth itself, these giants were highly intelligent beings and knew the importance of their vigilance. For a while, stability was created. The High Elves flourished as a race, learning much of the world through their contact with the other more primitive races, such as dwarfs and man. The truth-sayers of Albion, on the other hand, were isolated. They preferred the safety of their remote isle to the danger of the outside world, and became introverted and reclusive. The giants also suffered from their imposed isolation. Centuries of inbreeding dulled their minds. When the danger of chaos vanished, they became bored and restless, and resorted to mindless displays of strength in order to pass away the time. The tribes of men on the island also suffered a similar fate. With the disappearance of the Old Ones and a distinct lack of contact with the outside world, they degenerated into a race of warring tribesmen and primitive cave dwellers. During all this time, the Truthsayers continued to teach a chosen few of each successive generation their secret magic, waiting for the day when their masters would return. Each Truthsayer would be taught in minute detail the ritual ceremonies that were needed to maintain the mists that enveloped the island. They would each learn the nature of the stones and offerings that must be made, so that the magical power of these circles never waned. Over time, though, the ancient lores were slowly forgotten, and, although the Truthsayers still practiced their art, it was but a shadow compared to the powers that used to be at their command. Some practices still survived, though, and on the night of each full moon, the trousss would gather and perform ceremonies in order that the mystical energies stayed bound to the stones. So it came to be that Albion remained a mysterious island. Many tales tell of raiding ships that have vanished into the mists, never to be seen again. Occasionally, the gossip in a tavern will turn to the tale of a friend of a friend who was shipwrecked on the isle and returned to tell stories of creatures that were half-horse, half-man, or of terrible one-eyed beasts that stalked the mist. Some even claimed to return with riches beyond a man's wildest dreams. No truth to these stories has ever been proven, and the rumors of Albion remain little more than fantastical tales told by drunks to any who would listen. But now a new legend has spread across the land. Sailors talk of an island which has suddenly appeared to the far north, Huge white cliffs loom out of the sea, but the sailors have also spied beaches where a small boat might possibly make landing. It would seem that the mists have parted and the land lies open to explore. Every race across the Warhammer world is gathering its armies to seek the treasures of Albion and claim the island as their own. Even more disturbing are the rumors of dark strangers who have been traversing the length and breadth of the world. They talk of a dark master One who will lead the strong to conquer the weak. Of these dark emissaries, as they have been named, little is known. People talk of sinister magics at work, and where they walk, death follows. Of the dark master, nothing is known, save for the fact that he has called his followers to join him at Albion. Only time will tell of the secrets that will undoubtedly be revealed. That is a little overview of Albion. Throws some shade at both the High Elves and the Lizardmen, or at least the Slan, but a very interesting and enlightening piece of lore nonetheless. Albion is one of those places in the Warhammer world that has a very tragic past, where it used to be a paradise, whilst the Old Ones were still in charge of things. And since their quick departure, it has degenerated into this swampy, rainy, awful place. And really nothing on Albion has escaped this degeneration. The Truthsayers, the Giants, the people themselves have all become more primitive, and they have lost much of their former strength. The next thing we encounter is a map of Albion itself. Albion looks a little bit like Ireland in some ways, though they’re not exactly twins by any respect. It lies in the sea, to the northwest of Britonia, and kind of across from Norska, so it is quite northernly, though it doesn’t quite share Norska’s absolute frigid temperatures. We will be getting to the weather in Albion very soon, since it had a huge effect on the battles that were fought there. The map itself has some interesting, notable places, including the Forge of the Old Ones, the Citadel of Lead, the Pillar of Og-Agog, and the Great Ogham. Towards the middle of Albion, you will find the Great Hogs. I assume these are just giant boars. I like that they included them on this map. To the south is a tiny island called the Isle of Wights, and the note is many burrows here. I think you could have some fun doing almost a Celtic undead-themed list out of the Isle of Wights. It'd be really cool. There's a big Celtic feel to Albion, and let's be fair here, we know that the Warhammer world is based on our own world. Albion, of course, a very famous old name for Britain. So there are a lot of similarities there between the Britain of the Ancient Celts and Albion in this campaign. The next section is Shadows Gather, and this gives us a breakdown of how each race of the Warhammer world is marshalling their forces and coming to Albion. It's a lore explanation for each of the races. It's a cool little section, but we won't go into too much here. What we will hit on is the Ogham Stones in this section. And they are the big stone circles erected by the giants and looked after by the Truthsayers that help bind the wild magics that spew out of the realm of chaos and keep them from overwhelming the world. They are basically tiny versions of the Great Vortex. Capturing and controlling the Ogham stones was a lot of the point of the Albion campaign. The Truthsayers aimed to protect the stones, keep them functioning. The Dark Emissaries wanted to capture, tear down the stones, or corrupt them to serve the Dark Master and the energies of chaos. And it's this push and pull between these two sides that is the very heart of the Albion campaign. Now we get in to the new units for the campaign, and we have three of them. We have Dark Emissaries, we have Truthsayers, and we have... Fen Beasts. We're going to start things off here with the Dark Emissaries, as they are the first ones in the book. What's interesting about both the Dark Emissaries and the Truthsayers is that you could use either of them in any force. You didn't have to use a Dark Emissary for an evil aligned army like Chaos or Skaven, and you didn't have to use a Truthsayer for a force of, say, High Elves or Lizardmen. You could freely choose which one you were going to use however you wanted. And it was pretty easy to make up some lore for this for whatever side you wanted to fight on and for whatever of these two mages you wanted to include in your army. And I like that there was that kind of freedom. Here's the basic rules around including these models. When fighting a game in the Albion campaign, first agree with your opponent on which side your armies are fighting. Having done this, you need to decide if you want your battle to include a dark emissary and a Truthsayer. Dark Emissaries and Truthsayers do not count towards the number of characters an army can have. Nor do they add to the total points value of their army, since they always come in pairs, one on each side. Their values even out. In games where victory points are counted, Dark Emissaries and Truthsayers are worth 265 victory points. They cannot be the army general. So that's really neat. You agree with your opponent and then you both get... What is a level 4 wizard with their own unique... Spell list to add to your armies basically for free. The Dark Emissaries are the twisted servants of the Dark Master. They have spread out throughout the Old Worlds to contact the power hungry of all races and manipulate them into coming to Albion to fight for glory and plunder and to serve this Dark Master who will reward them for their strength. The Dark Emissary is Movement 4, Weapon Skill 3, Ballistic Skill 3, Strength 3, Toughness 3, 3 Wounds, Initiative 3, 1 Attack, and Leadership 8. This is during the 6th edition era that was very hard on wizards as far as stat lines go. This is about on par with what you would expect for a human wizard. They really shouldn't be anywhere near any kind of fighting the Emissary is armed with the Staff of Darkness, which is a hand weapon. He has no armor, and must always fight on foot. Dark Emissaries are level 4 wizards, and they always use spells from the Dark Emissaries list. They have a special rule called the Spiral. It is the symbol of the Dark Master and a feared sign of damnation. Few enemies dare look upon it. It provided them with a 5-up ward save. And that Staff of Darkness that counts as a hand weapon also gives them a plus 1 to cast spells is quite nice. They have six spells in their spell list, three of them that cast on a seven, one that casts on an eight, one on a 10, and one on a 12. So a fairly good mix, but no super easy spells. Their first spell is the Bolt of Dark Light. This is a simple magic missile that does d6 strength five hits with a range of 18 inches. Nothing special there, casts on a seven. Betrayal in death is their next spell that also casts on a seven? This spell can be cast on an enemy unit that is engaged in close combat and within 18 inches of the caster. Models who fall casualty will attack their own side in a final spasm of unholy energy. This spell lasts until the start of the caster's next turn. Fight the combat as normal. Any model in the affected unit which is killed during the combat immediately makes one further attack against a member of his own unit before it is removed. That is a really neat spell. It's got that real evil vibe to it. I like this one a lot. I think it's of limited effect in most situations, but could do some real damage for elite units if you ended up hitting them pretty hard and then they hit themselves pretty hard. Next up is Nightmare. The perverse arts of the Dark Emissary creates the illusion of the enemy's worst fears in front of their own eyes. This spell can be cast on an enemy unit visible to and within 24 inches of the caster and which is not engaged in close combat. If successfully cast, the unit immediately takes a panic test. Units immune to panic are immune to the effects of this spell. That one's eh. It's a panic test. If it works, if it works, it'll be worth it. If not, that's too bad. But it's always nice to have the option to just force a panic test, because you never know when your opponent's going to get unlucky, and then maybe you've dealt with a unit that was somewhere you didn't want it to be, Or perhaps it's towards the end of the game and they just don't rally in time. Not what I would consider a hugely strong spell, but I do like it. Number four is the Curse of the Dark Master, and this casts on an eight. The heart of the enemy is grasped by icy tentacles of fear and doubt that sap their strength and their will to fight. This can be cast on an enemy unit anywhere on the battlefield, even if engaged in close combat. If successfully cast, all models in the unit suffer a penalty of minus one, to all of their rolls to hit, both in shooting and close combat. Once cast, it remains in play until dispelled, or until the wizard chooses to end it, which he can do at any time. A nice little debuff there, minus one penalty to hit rolls, shooting in close combat, never a bad thing. Could really neuter a otherwise strong unit. Next up is Fog of Death. A mysterious fog rises from the ground, shrouding the entire battlefield, All fighting stops for a short time while friend and foe alike are lost in the haze and sinister screams fill the air. Each enemy unit on the table suffers d6 strength 3 hits, Randomize hits as per missile hits. The Dark Emissary has only limited control over the nightmarish creatures he has summoned, so the casting player must roll a dice for each of his own units, excluding the Dark Emissary himself or the unit he is with. On a 4 or 6, nothing happens. On a 1 to 3, the unit is affected by the spell exactly like an enemy unit. Definite downside there of maybe hurting your own guys. D6 Strength 3 hits is... you can deal with it. On average, it's 3 to 4 Strength 3 hits. It's not going to do a whole lot, but it could do a little bit to a lot of units. I think it's really good against armies like Elves that are expensive, but only Toughness 3. You probably get some worth from that. It's going to be pretty funny if it hits your own side as well. And the last one is the coils of the serpent. A writhing form snakes its way from the outstretched bands of the dark emissary and wraps its coils around a single enemy warrior, crushing the life out of its body. This can be cast on a single unengaged enemy model within 12 inches of the caster. The victim must immediately take a toughness test. If failed, the model is crushed to death. No armor saves or ward saves are allowed. This is very situational and short-ranged, but could be devastating. A lot of variables there, and a hard one to cast. I don't love it. What's interesting about these spells is you might find some of them familiar if you have watched our first live show on YouTube. When Bellicor came out in the Storm of Chaos campaign book, he had a spell list which has several of these pretty much exactly as the Dark Emissary has them, including Fog of Death and Coils of the Serpent. And I think it's really neat that when he finally was revealed as the Dark Master, spoiler alert for anyone who didn't realize that in the last 20 years, all in all, I like the Dark Emissary a lot. I think if you're going to play through the Albion campaigns, any large battle you're doing, take the Dark Emissary, take the Truthsayers, I'm a huge fan of these almost character style spell lores. I think they just add so much, so many interesting variables into a game, even if they're not always good. And in 6th edition, magic was heavily curtailed compared to the Hero Hammer era or later on the Aethed era. But you can still do a lot of fun stuff, and it can still have a pretty good effect on the battlefield. I like the Dark Emissary, and I like. The next one coming up, which is the Truthsayers. What I love about the Truthsayers is that while the game designers could have made them as a mirror to the Dark Emissaries, and in some ways they are, the Emissaries and the Truthsayers are actually quite different in terms of stats and the type of model that they are in the army. The Truthsayers are far more martial. Than the Dark Emissaries. However, they are only level 3 wizards. Their overall stats are much better than the Dark Emissaries, and it makes for an interesting difference between the two. Their spell list is also quite different, as they have spells that range from casting value 5 to casting value 9, which is very different from the Emissaries' higher values. To start things off, Truthsayers are movement 4, weapon skill 4, Ballistic Skill 3, Strength 4, Toughness 4, 3 Wounds, Initiative 4, 2 Attacks, and Leadership 9. Certainly not the most physically powerful characters in the game, but for wizards of the era, quite good and far better than the Dark Emissary. They are armed with the Staff of Light, which counts as a halberd, further improving their close combat potential. They wear no armor, always fight on foot, and they are level 3 wizards. They must use the spells from the Truthsayer's list. In special rules, they have the Triskel. The magical symbol of their office, it also focuses positive energies onto Truthsayers, protecting them from harm. It grants them a 4-up ward save. Here is the Truthsayer's spell list. First, they have Wings of Fate, which casts on a 5+. The Truthsayer conjures a flock of enchanted birds to attack his enemies. The Flock is a magic missile with a range of up to 24 inches. If successfully cast, it hits its target and causes 2d6 strength 2 hits. This isn't likely to amount to much, but it casts on a 5, which is a stupendously easy cast. Could be good against Toughness 3 lightly armored enemies if you get lucky. Otherwise, this isn't a particularly stunning spell. Then they have Light of Battle, which casts on a 6+. This spell can be cast on one friendly unit anywhere on the battlefield, even if engaged in close combat. All models in the unit receive a 5-plus ward save until the beginning of the caster's next turn. I like this one a lot. A 5-plus ward save is very potent, especially on some units that are already pretty tough. It's got a low casting cost, and it can be cast on pretty much anything. This is one that I think is super good. They have Gift of Life, which casts on a 7+. Dying warriors that are lying broken on the battlefield are granted a new chance. Their bodies healed of all wounds, and their strength returned to them. Each unit in the player's army is given back one model that has been removed as a casualty during the game. The model is placed back in its original unit, with its full complement of wounds. The spell has no effect on units that have been destroyed or fled off the table, All characters, chariots, and models with four or more wounds on their profile who have been wounded get one lost wound back. The spell has no effect on war machines, but it can restore a lost crew member. This is another one I like a whole lot. Every unit in the game getting one model back can be very powerful, especially if you have big expensive cavalry units. It casts on a 7+, which isn't too bad. I think this is another very useful spell for the truthsayers. Then there's Blessing of Valor. The prayers of the Truthsayer are heeded in the heavens, and his warriors are filled with the strength and skills of the gods of hunting and battle. This spell can be cast on a friendly unit which is anywhere on the battlefield, even if engaged in close combat. If the spell is successfully cast, all models in that unit get a plus one to all of their hit rolls, both in shooting and close combat. Once it is cast, the Blessing remains in play until it is dispelled, or until the wizard chooses to end it. This is an exact mirror of the Dark Emissary's debuff of negative 1 to hit. It's just as useful in its own way, and it's another one that I like quite a lot. Then there's Boon of Courage, which also casts on an 8+. This spell can be cast on one friendly unit anywhere on the battlefield, even if it is engaged in close combat. If successfully cast, the unit is unbreakable until the beginning of the caster's next turn. If cast on a fleeing unit, the unit immediately rallies, regardless of how many models are left in it. Another one that I think is very good. Unbreakable, a very powerful rule, especially in 6th edition. Nothing wrong with this, Cast on an 8. Finally, voice of command. Hearing the booming voice of the Truthsayer, an enemy regiment suddenly stops in its tracks, doubt filling their minds, hesitation paralyzing their limbs. This spell can be cast on any enemy unit on the table. The unit must immediately take a leadership test. If the test is failed, the unit immediately loses all its fighting spirit. The affected unit cannot move in the next movement phase. Except if the unit is subject to some form of compulsory movement, such as fleeing, stupidity, etc. In addition, the unit cannot shoot in its next shooting phase. The spell has no effect on models that are immune to psychology. This one I'm less high on simply because you have to cast it on a 9, and then it's predicated on them failing a leadership test. That's just more variables than I like in a spell like this. However, the effects are quite devastating. Not being able to move is huge, not being able to shoot is huge. It wouldn't be my first choice off this list, but I think it still has some utility. Between the Truthsayer and the Dark Emissary, I have to say I think the Truthsayer is a little bit better. I like his spell list a little bit more and whilst not a close combat character in the traditional sense, he can at least hold his own, has the 4 plus ward save, and his spells will really help out your army. Now we come to the fen beasts. These are the great Swamp Thing-esque monsters that the Dark Emissaries and the Truthsayers can summon up from the bogs, marshes, and, well, fens of Albion. The land of Albion is steeped in magic. The Ogham stones draw magical energy to the isle and the soil, rocks, plants, and even the fog, air, and rain are saturated with this. The Truthsayers and the Dark Emissaries can harness this energy in a number of ways, either harnessing it through the Ogham circles, or drawing it in a raw state from the air and ground itself. One way in which these wizards of Albion use the magical energy is to summon forth the elemental monsters known as Fenbeasts. Albion is riddled with marshes and bogs, and many creatures founder whilst trying to cross them, being dragged down to a murky grave. At such places, the mystical forces of Albion gather, drawn by death. When a person dies, it is said that their soul is trapped in the fens, unable to escape. At these places, a wizard can perform certain rituals to summon forth that trapped spirit. A fist-sized stone inscribed with the magical Ogham symbols is dropped into the mire at the place of the soul. A ritual involving the blood of the summoner binds the soul, the magic, and the marshes one, giving the wailing, insane spirit a form. The fen beast then bursts forth from its muddy grave, the Ogham stone pulsating with energy at its center. These creatures are totally without their own will. Instead, they are driven forth by the mind of their creator to do their bidding. Formed from mud and detrius of the marshes, Fen beasts are not living creatures in any true sense. They feel no pain and can reshape themselves to reform limbs that have been blown or chopped off. They have an elemental strength, drawing power from the ground beneath them to smash enemy with fists as powerful as battering rams. They are without emotion, fearless beasts that will not stop as long as their master's will endures. To use a fen beast, you must include a Truthsayer or a Dark Emissary in your army... And then you may field from 1 to 3 fenbies As a single rare choice, no army can include more than 3 fenbies. They are 85 points each, and they have the following stats. Movement 6, Weapon Skill 3, No Ballistic Skill, Strength 5, Toughness 5, 4 Wounds, Initiative 2, 3 Attacks, and Leadership 10. They have a number of special rules. Firstly, they are single models with a unit strength of four, and they always operate in units of one. They are unbreakable, they cause fear. They have Fenwalker. For the purposes of movement, they treat fens, marshes, morasses, and similarly swampy terrain as open ground. They have no will, which means if their summoner, be it a dark emissary or a truth dies, they will immediately collapse and be removed as a casualty. They have a special regenerate rule which gives them the classic regeneration rule, but only when they are in marshes, swamps, bogs, or other similar terrain. They also cannot regenerate wounds from fire or magically inflicted wounds. They also come with their own spell. Not a spell that they can cast, but a spell that can be cast if you include a fen beast with your Emissary or your Truthsayer. It's called Elemental Power, and it has a casting roll of 6+. Fenbeasts are elemental creatures which thrive on the magic, which suffuses the Isle of Albion. This can be boosted by magical energy from the Truthsayer or the Dark Emissary. As well as their normal spells, Truthsayers and Dark Emissaries also have the Elemental Power spell, which is only of use on Fenbeasts. Pick a single Fenbeast within 18 of the caster. The Fenbeast immediately gains d3 wounds, up to its starting value of 4. The Fenbeast is... Iconic. For the Albion campaign. They were an interesting looking model. And I like them a lot as far as aesthetic goes. I thought they were a really cool inclusion. They are fairly tough. And if you're playing in an Albion themed match. I could see you having lots of fens and bogs and things. That they could get that regeneration rule off in. Weapon skill 3 and 3 attacks isn't impressive, but they will hit hard whenever they do hit. I think if you're playing an Albion-themed game, you might as well throw in a Fen Beast just for the pure aesthetics and for the theme, and you can spare the 85 points. It's really not all that much in the great scheme of things, especially since you're not paying for either spellcaster. I wish they had a little bit more going for them. But there's still a very cool addition to this supplement. Now that we've covered the units added in the campaign, the supplement gets into actually fighting battles on Albion. And the first thing that they want you to know is that the winds of magic are blowing oddly. And they actually rank them from 1 to 11, including the Dark Emissary's magic and the Truthsayers magic in there. Death and Necromancy share a spot. And what was really neat about these rankings is that they were updated throughout the campaign with different lores moving up and down the lists. And what this would do is it would change up the difficulty to cast spells. So if Albion became infused with the Lore of the Beasts, which is how it starts, Lore of the Beasts is in the first position, you get plus three to the casting total of each spell. However, any double rolled except a double six will be a miscast. So you get that bonus, but there's also a drawback. And if you're in last place, like the poor Lore of Metal down at 11, you get minus three to the casting roll. However, you can not miscast at all, or cast with irresistible force. It was a really neat idea, and I think it could have a big effect on games depending on what kind of casters you liked to take. And it was a neat way to check in with the Games Workshop website at the time just to see which magic lore was in Supremacy and which had fallen off. I believe it updated every week. As an aside, wah magic for the orcs and goblins worked entirely differently because it was generated by the orcs and goblins itself. So in your campaign, if you had an orcs and goblins player, you would keep track of how many times they won or lost. And that would determine how easy or hard it was for them to cast magic, with wins adding up to casting bonuses and losses... To negatives. Now we come to one of the more famous aspects of this campaign. I'm sure a very unpopular one amongst Wood Elf generals of the early 6th edition. This is the weather table. Albion is known for its terrible weather. We know why that is. The Ogham Stones draw storms and rain and all sorts of awfulness to Albion, and the whole island is wet and awful. As you played through the campaign, you could generate weather, and you could actually change the weather as well. If you were to go on the Games Workshop website, you could see the weather report for each day in Albion, and when you were playing that day, you could use that weather if you wanted to. Again, a really neat, immersive way to add a little bit of fun to the campaign. We have a weather table included in the supplement. And there was seven possibilities. Possibility number one was a hailstorm. The sky turns black and fist-sized hailstones pummel the armies. Flying movement was at half normal rate, i.e. 10 rather than 20 for most. All missile fire was at minus 2 to hit. Any war machine that does not use ballistic skill may only shoot on a 6 plus on a 1d6. If you have a cannon or anything like that, you would have to roll a d6 and then get a six before you could even fire the thing. In addition, all rally attempts are at minus one. I guess no one wants to stick around and fight a battle in a hailstorm. Option two was driving rain and gales. Sheets of bitterly cold rain lash at the regiments. Soaring gales blow arrows and bolts all over the sky, and shouted commands are lost in the roaring wind. Flying movement is at half again. All missile fires at minus one to hit. You see why wood elves really loved fighting in Albion. Any war machine that does not use ballistic skill to hit may only shoot on a 4-plus on a 1d6. Roll each turn to see if it may shoot. In addition, all rally attempts are at minus 1. Now we get into the less terrible weather. Light, drizzle, and fog. That sounds like the weather in Halifax for about half the year. Wraiths of mist shroud both armies, and the air is heavy and damp. At the start of each game turn, roll an artillery die and multiply the result by 3 to find out how far in inches your troops can see. If you roll a misfire, then the fog lifts momentarily, but roll again next game turn. You cannot shoot, charge, or cast spells that require line of sight to targets you cannot see. Almost reminiscent of the night fighting rules for Warhammer 40k, number 4 is just a light drizzle. All the troops are a bit soggy, and there's much grumbling in the ranks, but there's a war on. Everyone expects Drizzle and Albion, so there's no effect. <laughs> Number five is showers. Heavy showers periodically soak the armies, though it does nothing to halt the killing. This one had no effect except that if you had any fens on the battlefield, you would treat them as fetid swamps instead. Fetid swamps were a alternate terrain piece that were like the bogs and marshes and fens, but more dangerous to move through. 6. Torrential Rain The skies open and the armies are drenched. Black powder is damp and slow to spark. Bowstrings stretch and the troops themselves are sodden and miserable. Flying movement is at half again. All missile fire is at minus one to hit again. Any war machine that does not use ballistic skill to hit may only shoot on a four plus on a 1d6. So not as bad as the other one, where you can only shoot on a 6, but still pretty terrible. Then there was some rules around the terrain, where you would treat fens as fetid swamps, and fetid swamps as morasses. These were kind of tiered upgrades of swamp in levels of dangerous. You would also treat fast streams as rivers. So again, a little bit more dangerous to move through. Finally, number 7 is thunderstorm. Black clouds smother the sky as the rains batter the struggling armies. Streaks of lightning arc furiously across the skies as the gods themselves war in the heavens. Flying creatures cannot take off and must use their ground movement rate instead. All missile fire is at a minus two to hit, and any war machine that does not use ballistic seal may only shoot on a six plus. In addition, all rally attempts are at a minus one. Then we have the terrain upgrades that is the same as last time. On top of all this, at the start of each player's turn, that a thunderstorm is raging, one or more units will be struck by lightning. Each player rolls 1d6. The player that rolls the lowest nominates one of his own units to be struck by lightning. If the roll is a tie, both players nominate one of their own units. Each unit that is struck by lightning takes d6 strength 5 hits. The weather could change during the game. And what's funny about it is that once it had properly rained on the armies, they would stay soaked for the rest of the battle. So you would have to apply the worst penalty from the weather so far to missile units whenever they shot, even if the rain let up and say it only went down to a drizzle. The terrain itself had the same rules apply, so all of your fens could get more and more dangerous as the game went on, as well as anything like rivers or any real water terrain. Our next section are the scenarios, six in all. And these play through everything from landing on Albion to the final battle for control of the whole island. Scenario one is the Mist Recoil. This might be the most famous one. And I remember setting this up and playing several times myself. It's a real storm the beaches type of game. That almost has a historical feel to it. Something like the D-Day landings. But fantasy. In this scenario, one player has 500 points worth of troops in boats that are rowing to the shore. The other player has a small force of war machines. And of course, the war machines that you got depended on your race. For example, orcs and goblins could take any combination of three rock lobbers, or spear chuckers, And one of the three could be a doom diver. Dwarfs could take a combination of three cannons. Or bolt throwers or stone throwers. And one of them could be a flame cannon or an organ gun. Of course some armies suited this better than others. Other than the artillery and the crew. The defense force just had 50 points of infantry models. To defend the beachhead. The thought was that most of the attacking force would die in the sea as their boats got destroyed by the artillery, and then those who actually made it to the shore would have to take the fight to the enemy. It was kind of neat that we got rules for landing boats. They were toughness seven with three wounds, kind of your standard war machine toughness, and they moved 2d6 inches a turn randomly as the crew frantically rowed for shore. Scenario two was a bit of a weird one. It was called the Fens. Led by a truth-sayer slash dark emissary, a small attacking army is trying to break through an enemy force to make its way inland. You had 1500 points of attackers versus 3000 points of defenders and the goal of the attackers was to punch through the defenders and get their units off the other side. You could score victory points as the attackers either by destroying enemy units or getting your units off the table in which case they gave you a bonus of their own victory points. As the defender, you just had to stop the attacker from doing this. This one seems like a very difficult scenario for the attacker, although it's not one that I've played, so perhaps it's a little bit more even than that in practice, but I think it is a game that you would very much want to tailor your forces for. Scenario three is the Ogham Stones. The two armies are fighting for control of one of the sacred stone circles of Albion. These mystic places are the focus of all of the winds of magical energy flowing through the ether of the island. If the Dark Master manages to gain control of all of them, the doom of the entire Warhammer world could be decided. This one was a little bit more of a classic battle in that you chose your forces to any points level. In the middle of the battlefield, you would want a circle of standing stones, In a 12-inch diameter around that center, with a gap of at least 5 inches between one stone and the next, so you could fit your units in there. The game continued until the victory conditions were achieved or 10 turns had elapsed. To win the game, a player had to have one or more models inside the stone circle at the beginning of any of his turns after turn 4, and there must not be a single enemy model inside of it. And of course, fleeing units, they did not count as being inside. If the game went all the way until turn 10, you would count unit strength, and then the player with the most unit strength in the circle itself would be victorious. It had an interesting special rule in the form of Ogham magic. Any wizard inside the stone circle at the beginning of the magic phase will generate double the number... will generate double the normal amount of both power dice and dispel dice. That's a big buff, and... It forced you to put your wizards into the stones and put them into harm's way. It's very interesting. And as a note to undead players, you could not raise undead models inside the circle. Then we get to scenario four, which might be the coolest of all of the scenarios in my humble opinion. An invading army is advancing deeper and deeper into the mist-shrouded lands of Albion. Suddenly, the invaders are ambushed by a vast group of horrible, gigantic creatures. That emerge from the surrounding marshes. Their attack is so carefully prepared and executed that it seems to allude to the presence of a superior intellect controlling them and driving them forward. It is an ambush scenario which followed the ambush scenario rules from the Warhammer rulebook, but it had the following exceptions. The defender chooses his army normally and had 50% more points than the attacker. The attacker, on the other hand, chooses an army entirely made up of monsters, and you would ignore all normal restrictions for army selection. And by monsters in this scenario, they meant models or a unit of models with three wounds or more on their profile that are not war machines, chariots, or characters. And they could be chosen from any published army book, or the Ravening Hordes list if the army book wasn't out. The only dogs of war monsters that could be used in this scenario were the Giants of Albion, and you might as well get them in here at some point. If a monster was a 0-1 to choice in its army book, it was a 0-1 to choice in this monster army as well. Even monsters that could normally only be deployed as mounts could be taken in this scenario and be riderless, and that was okay. Things like griffins and wyverns and dragons. And if you chose a monster that usually came with a crew, like a stegodon or a War Hydra, they come alone without the crew, but you can reduce their points by 10% to compensate. No monster had to take a monster reaction test, and they would fight normally under the control of the player for the entire scenario. Victory condition was straight victory points. I think this scenario is awesome. I don't think there are enough monster mash scenarios in Warhammer, or 40k for that matter. I really like this. I think the monster player is probably in tough on this one to try and win. However, the ambush scenario does give them some major advantages and they could probably use that to put up a good fight. I love the idea of these normally ridden monsters just showing up under some kind of malign intelligence and just tearing into an army. Very cool. Scenario 5 is the Bastion of the Old Ones. An attacking army has reached the vast fortifications defending the Citadel of the Dark Master. A protected full-scale siege would be both bloody and extremely costly for the attacker. So a daring plan is to be attempted. A small, lightly equipped assault force has sneaked its way by night to a secondary gate in the walls and is now ready to assault at the first light of dawn. The plan is to storm the walls and seize control of the gate and hold it for long enough for the attacking army to reach it and enter the fortifications. This is a siege battle, so it follows all of the normal siege rules. The Defender had 750 points and could only choose infantry and non-wizard characters on foot. The Truthsayers and the Dark Emissaries were not allowed in the scenario. The Attacker had 1500 points and the exact same restrictions both armies could buy siege equipment for the game. The game lasted for seven turns, and to win, the attacking player needed to control the gate at the end of the game. To control the gate, the attacker must have an unbroken unit with a unit strength of at least five inside the walls and in base contact with the gate itself by the end of the game. If the game were to end with an attacking unit in this position, but engaged in close combat with the defenders, the game is considered a draw. If there is no attacking unit in such a position, The defender is victorious. The attacker could also win by completely wiping out the defending force. The setup for this siege battle is kind of the classic half-of-a-castle setup. So you'd have the single gate, the four towers, and the two wall sections against one of the long table edges. And the attacker could deploy around that. Finally, we have the plane of battles. Scenario number six. The final battle. Led by truthsayers and dark emissaries, the armies have finally come to the mythical plane of battle. Here, under the constant storm flaying this miserable place, hosts clash in their final confrontation. Steel rings against steel as warriors struggle desperately in the mud, their blood tainting it dark red. Here, fate and valor will decide who lives and conquers and who dies. This is a pitched battle, and follows the pitched battle rules, There is only one objective in the game, is to wipe out the enemy altogether. No retreat, no mercy. The last man standing is the winner. You could choose your armies to any points value, and you must include a truth-sayer and a dark emissary. The battlefield rules are interesting. The plane of battles is a featureless waste. Leave the tabletop completely empty. I think this is just a really lazy scenario, honestly. Well, what should we do for the last scenario? Uh, let's make it a pitched battle. Oh, okay, sure, we don't have a regular pitched battle in here, we'll throw in a regular pitched battle. Uh, what kind of stuff should we have on the battlefield? Nothing. You mean just nothing? Yeah, nothing. It's fine. Terrain doesn't matter. Just a blank tabletop in a pitched battle in a fight to the death. It's not a bad idea, it just seems, compared to some of the interesting rules in these other scenarios, This one is a little bit plain Jane, as it were. Deployment was normal pitch battle deployment, except you could not use scouts. Game length was to the death, so fight as long as you want. Special rules were deluge. The weather number seven on the Albion table applies for the entire game. Have fun. That is the thunderstorm for the entire game, which is only appropriate for such a mighty battle. Finally there was no retreat. In this scenario units cannot leave the table. Fleeing units are stopped as soon as they reach the table edge and in their next rallying phase rally automatically even if below 25% of their initial strength. Pursuing units are stopped at the edge of the table as well. Note that this could lead to situations where a pursuer can reach and destroy a broken unit which has actually rolled more on its flee distance than the pursuers have rolled in the pursuit movement. This is quite all right and the fleeing unit is destroyed as normal. They really wanted you to fight to the death here. (laughs) Those are the scenarios. And I think for the most part, they're all pretty good. I make fun of the last one a little bit, but I'd still really like to play it at some point. After that, we get into the Albion Terrain Generator. Terrain Generators, I love them. I think they're so great. I've played with them a few times in Warhammer Fantasy, and it always leads to an interesting setup if not one that's always conducive for mass battles, but I think that adds an extra interesting little dynamic in your games as well. The terrain generator could generate all sorts of things, including a stone circle, fetid swamp, small lake, broken moorland, hill, fen, fast stream, dark and forbidding forest, river, crag, and morass. This gives you a good sense of what Albion is like and probably why you don't want to vacation there. Let's talk about a couple of the ones that we read about earlier. The Fen is an area of water and reeds with the odd stunted tree here and there. It counts as difficult terrain, but does not block line of sight. There may be a long causeway over the part of the Fen on a roll of five or six on a D6. A pretty simple terrain feature, just difficult ground. They could turn into fetid swamps, an area of stagnant pools and rotting vegetation. This hummocky and boggy swamp counts as very difficult terrain, but does not block line of sight. In addition, it is completely impassable to war machines. There may be a log causeway over part of the swamp on a roll of 5 to 6 on a d6. The weather of Albion could turn your fen into a fetid swamp. It could also turn your fetid swamp into a morass. When moving through a morass, a footing that seems secure quickly turns into a bottomless quagmire, and both men and animals can easily disappear under the surface. I'm having never-ending story flashbacks right now. This is a treacherous area of difficult ground. In addition, each turn a unit spends in, or moving through a morass, it loses D6 models, swallowed by the clinging mud. The morass does not block line of sight. There may be a log causeway over part of the morass on a, on a roll of 5 or 6 on a D6, Do not move into a morass. It's real bad for you. Losing D6 models, just gone. You'd lose a whole cavalry unit. I know I could do it. I would move in there, there would be some rain, and I would just lose every single model. Five Chaos Knights, done. The book finishes off with some campaign ideas. For ways that you can stretch out the campaign, add your own flair to the scenarios... And some of them are pretty great. One is, have a go at the traditional giant sport known as the Big Bash. This brutal sport is simple entertainment for the simple locals, and mainly involves a bunch of unruly giants bashing each other's brains out with rocks, trees, and anything else that comes to hand. In fact, we might have a go at this one too. This would become a White Dwarf article that would show you how to fight the Big Bash with a bunch of giants. Well worth a look if you are a giant enthusiast, or if you're just someone who owns a bunch of giants and doesn't know what to do with them. Another suggestion would be, fight games of Mordheim, Warhammer Quest, or Warhammer skirmishes to explore the ancient burial mounds of the Vales. Perhaps a magical sword lurks in the crumbling tombs that could be used by your army in later battles, if only you can liberate it from the clutches of a long dead king. On the other hand, your favorite heroes may be bested in combat and join the living dead. For some truly huge battles, you can play games of Warmaster as part of the Dark Shadows campaign as well. Rick Priestley and his friends have written some Warmaster scenarios which are presented in White Dwarf 259 and Warmaster Magazine issue 6, so check them out. Oh, Warmaster. Let's pour one out for Warmaster. Great game. Died well before its time. Games Workshop just really could never seem to get a game to stick that wasn't in the 28mm scale. This campaign brings back a lot of fond memories of that 6th edition era. I'm more of a hero hammer guy 9 times out of 10, but I do love 6th edition, and reading this just makes me all nostalgic for that early 6th edition era, kind of the, the Ravening Hordes era. I don't think many of the armies had their army books by this point. And it was the first kind of big thing that happened during 6th edition. And it really kicked off the darker era of Warhammer, after the bright, cartoony Herohammer era ended. Later on in White Dwarf Magazine, Gav Thorpe would write the aftermath of Dark Shadows, which would wrap it all up for us. And we learned that over the span of the summer campaign, once all of the games were tallied, The forces of order were victorious, and the Dark Master was driven from Albion. We'd see him crop up finally in Storm of Chaos as the first Demon Prince Belichor. If you want to learn more about Bellicor, check out our very first live stream on YouTube. We talked all about the history of Bellicor, as a tie-in for his new model. Certain armies were picked out as having done particularly well in the campaign, The Lizardmen and the High Elves ended up both having a large presence on the island, with the Lizardmen even founding a new temple city, a piece of lore that would be sadly forgotten in the later eras. On the evil side of things, the Dark Elves were successful in landing several Black Arcs and creating a commanding citadel upon the island as well. The article would go on to give you more opportunities to battle on Albion, and it would even take into account some of the changes that were happening because of the end of the Dark Shadows campaign. One of them, called Into the Jungle, is a force led by a dark emissary leads an expedition into the jungles, now growing around the Bastion of the Old Ones. The Bastion of the Old Ones was where the Lizardmen started building this new temple city. I think that's really cool. And gives you kind of a, an early preview into the Lustria campaign that would come later on. There was also another scenario called Steal the Ship. Desperate to flee the vengeance of the Truthsayers, a Dark Emissary has mustered an army to steal a vessel to leave Albion's shores. However, the owners aren't going to just give it up. And that would be played as a breakthrough scenario. We also got rules for Truthsayers and Dark Emissaries and Fenbeasts in regular games of Warhammer. Truthsayers and Dark Emissaries both cost 265 points, and they both use up a rare choice and a hero choice. I'm not huge on 265 points plus the rare choice and the hero choice. That's a little bit much, I think. I think they would have been fine as a hero choice and 265 points. And the Wonderful Fen beasts stay at 85 points each, with the caveat that you must include a Dark Emissary or a Truthsayer. Unfortunately, Albion wouldn't have much of a legacy beyond the introduction of Bellicor, and it wasn't even really his introduction, since we wouldn't learn about Bellicor, the Demon Prince, and the fact that he was the Dark Master until after Dark Shadows. It, along with Storm of Chaos, was a victim of Games Workshop pivoting Warhammer Fantasy towards this route that would ultimately culminate in the end times. For my money, I think I much prefer the Dark Shadows slash Storm of Chaos canon to the one that we got in the end times. I think it opened up far more possibilities. It exists today as sort of an interesting curio of an era of Games Workshop that has long since passed. Those wonderful and fun summer campaigns that started out so promising and then would peter out later on with milk toast offerings like The Fall of Medusa 5. I think if you're a Warhammer player today, Dark Shadows is well worth looking at as a fun little way to spruce up your games of Warhammer fantasy. With some interesting rules, all of it works pretty well from any edition, from 6th to 8th. The magic is a little underwhelming by the time you get to 8th edition if you're taking a Truthsayer or a Dark Emissary, but since you can take them for free, that doesn't really matter even. If you're playing any of the later editions of Warhammer Fantasy, these scenarios and these rules could really give you a fun way to run a campaign with a buddy or even a group of friends for control of Albion. I highly recommend the very first scenario, the Miss Recoil, It's just a really fun and really different way to use your Warhammer Fantasy models. And it is always very cinematic, the beach landings and worrying about your troops drowning or worrying about too many of the enemy troops reaching your war machines before you can stop them. I think that one is great fun, even when I was playing it by myself as a kid. That's going to be all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this one. I'm going to be taking a look in the nearish future at some of the other classic summer campaigns of the same era. I hope you have a great week. Please do check out our live stream game if you can, and until next time, happy wargaming. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Wargames Orchard. If you like the show, why not support us on Patreon? Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content and is totally non-tiered, so for whatever donation you'd like, you can have access to all of our bonus content. If Patreon's not your thing, then consider giving us a 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice, and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, check out what's new with the War Games Orchard, or just say hello. You can find us on Facebook, our community page is the Warhammer Orchard, And while you're there, you can follow our regular page, The War Games Orchard. Outside of Facebook, you can get a hold of us by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com.